2: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Stuff
2: to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hey, welcome to
2: Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we are going to be talking about the 1981 science fiction film Visitors from the Arcana Galaxy. Uh, Rob, I just finished watching this one (laughs) moments before we sat down to record here. And wow, this is in our it's got to be on like the top 10 list of weirdest movies we have ever done on the show
3: yeah this one was a real pleasure this one's a real treat this one's worth hunting down uh and i have to say also thanks to listener eric for recommending this one to us he pointed out some months ago that the excellent restoration label deaf crocodile was going to be putting this one out and uh, i looked at the 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 cover art i looked at some of the stills from the film and i was like okay i think i need to buy this one so i i put in the pre-order uh set it aside during halloween Uh, with the intention
2: of coming back to it in November. And here we are. Yes. Thank you for the recommendation. So Rob, this, this was your pick. I really didn't know anything at all about it going in, except you handed the disc off to me, said, here's what we're watching. I put it in and wow, was I, th- this is the movie where you really do not know where this is going. Some of the weird movies we talk about have a uh, weird texture to them, but they, they might be kind of formulaic in terms of plot structure. Or a lot of the, you know, the horror movies we look at are like that. You can kind of tell where they're going to go. This one, I had no idea where it was going and it felt At times, like a a child, you know, trying to make up a story as they go along, adding in just bizarre details. Like, I really didn't expect there was going to be a major subplot where the main character of this movie's girlfriend is turned into a metallic cube. Yeah, Um, (laughs) And I also did not expect, especially given how some earlier parts of the movie feel very... Uh, broad and whimsical and almost childlike so like they might be intended for like a, a younger audience. Uh, I really did not expect that later in this movie there would just be a, a gory monster rampage carried out by like the the Axis Bold as Love cover version of uh, like a cross between Alf and Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah moomoo the monster uh, he's gonna be fun to, to
3: talk about yeah this this is a move it's like so many films like you, you you're saying they're on the tracks of genre they're on the tracks of of formula and uh, this one with this film it may seem at first like it's going to be on the tracks but no the train lifts off the tracks and then you're, you're flying off to who knows where and we'll get into some of the reasons for that, like the different um, elements and inspirations that came together, the, the alchemy of this picture. So this movie was a 1981 co-production of Yugoslav and Czechoslovakian cinema involving four different studios, Zagreb film, which is now in Croatia, uh, Jadrun film, also now in Croatia; uh, Zagreb, which is also now in Croatia, and then Filmski Studio Barandov, now in the Czech Republic. An international co-production, <laughs> an international co-production of two countries that no longer exists in the form they existed in at the time of this uh, this film's release: uh, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia,
2: in particular. I don't know exactly where this was shot, but I would guess it was along the Croatian coastline because uh, the movie has a much more uh, I don't know it's just kind of scenic Mediterranean feel than I was expecting as well yeah it's a,
3: it's my understanding that this was filmed in Croatia, and yeah, you do have that texture of the of these like Croatian vacation towns, and they touch on that more more than once like it's it's an an important part of the of the the background um setting for the whole picture. Uh, And I was reading some of the background material for this uh, particular film. Uh, The the deaf crocodile release has a nice little booklet uh, with information about the the picture and the filmmakers uh, by film professor Jennifer Lind Barker. And uh, she points out that a lot of the locations used in this film uh, might look familiar to people who watch Game of Thrones because a lot of scenes from Game of Thrones were filmed in the exact same locations.
2: Oh, yeah, that would make sense. I think King's Landing.
3: I'm not sure if I'm remembering that correctly, but I think the King's Landing scenes were filmed in Croatia, but I I could have that mixed around in my head, and it's another place in the Game of Thrones uh, TV show that was filmed in Croatia.
2: You absolutely, on Game of Thrones, I, I think we'll see multiple locations that are, you know, coastal areas on the Adriatic. Yeah. All right, well, my
3: elevator pitch for this movie is, if you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will physically manifest, move into your flat, and turn your girlfriend into a cube. I
2: think that's dead on that, that, yeah, that's exactly how I would describe it. You know, I haven't had as much time to process this one as I sometimes do when we watch these movies because I just now finished watching it. But I was trying to think. So this is a story about a writer and a dreamer, a creative Mm -hmm. person. Of course, a lot of writers end up writing stories that are about writing. It's kind of uh, it's a very tempting subject if, you know, to write about what you are doing right now, which is writing if you're writing. Uh, But I was wondering to what extent. The themes of this movie uh, are supposed to be about writing specifically, or if it's incidental that the main character is a, a sort of dreamy science fiction storyteller, uh, and really it's supposed to be more about relationships or just obsession or, or whatever. Um, the, the main character often describes his own problem, not so much in direct terms of like creativity or writing, but as an obsession.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, multiple reads on it are, of course, valid. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, it is fascinating that it is. Uh, it's it's not alone in being a picture about sort of the conflict between a creative obsession and the responsibilities of real life um, and, and just sort of the, the texture and nature of real life versus fantasy um, and, and what happens when these two worlds come into conflict. Um, but uh, as we'll discuss like one of the interesting things about Robert the the main character in this the writer is he doesn't seem to get a lot of writing accomplished. There's this <laughs> strong sense that the book is nowhere near any state of completion, and it, like, physically manifests later on as a blank book. Um, so it's almost really more about the conflict between the inner world of imagination and and the outer world. You know, something that's been tackled in, in so many works, including The NeverEnding Story. I mean, that's part of the, the whole scenario there, except with this whole, like, childhood versus adult sort of scenario, Cobbled into it as
2: well. That that's a very good point. I I think I was going to say something right along those lines that the writing in this movie is there's never any indication that it involves language at all. Mm-hmm. Like he you don't see him crafting sentences or paragraphs or like working on his his fiction. His it's it's purely about coming up with ideas. And you can tell it because he he likes to talk them into a handheld tape recorder. He's got like a, a cassette-based voice memo thing. And so it and and this is, I think we will all recognize. In fact, I think most writers will recognize some part of themselves that is like this that likes to just come up with ideas for things. Yeah, and and
3: part of the whole conflict in the story, too, is that. When he dreams up things, when there are things that, that he wants, he has this peculiar paranormal ability to manifest them in reality, um, which that's kind of makes one, a, I guess, a crappy writer in the end, because you don't have to write it down. Right. Because it's already yeah. so you're already making it real through some supernatural ability. And I think you could compare that to sort of like the pure uh, idea dreamscape of creative endeavor. Like, you know, you can sit around and create whole worlds in your head. Um, and, you know, that can be the end of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to, you know, to bring your rich inner life, uh, you know, um, into a literary, um, creation. You don't have to share it with the world. You don't have to market it and, and get a price tag, uh, slapped on it and so forth and try and fill out some sort of, uh, you know, a capitalist dream of what you should be. Mm-hmm. But, um, But uh, uh, but 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 Robert in the film, like he still wants to be a writer and he still has this this aspiration that that is what he's going to be in reality uh, as well.
2: Yeah, but it's all like top level dreamy dream based. It's all just the pure imagination point. And that is an interesting comment on writing, because uh, I think it's very much the case, at least in my opinion, that almost always part of the magic of good writing Arises from the conflict between like your initial imagine, imagination of a story and then the process of putting that into language and getting it on the page, which fights back about, against your original imagination and makes you change things often for the better.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll continue this thread as we discuss the movie uh, further here. Uh, but let's go ahead and hear a little bit of audio from the film. I could not find a video clip of like an original. Uh, trailer for the film, uh, so we're going to hear just a little bit from the Deaf Crocodile Restoration trailer. Uh, so just just a little bit of this, JJ, if you would.
0: Andra, šena robot, targo i ulub, priблиžavaju se površini nema nepoznate tajanstvene planete. Roberte, nismo stigli. Koji govori?
3: All right, well, if you want to watch uh, Visitors from the Arcana Galaxy before continuing on with this episode, uh, currently the main way to see it is, uh, is to buy the excellent restoration from Def Crocodile. Uh, you can look them up at DefCrocodile.com, but they uh, the, the, the disc is also sold through various other online retailers like Vinegar Syndrome and so forth. Um, uh, wherever you can get it, I recommend picking it up if this is the sort of film that interests you. As far as I know, it's not available like uh, streaming wise anywhere else right now, but a lot of these releases often wind up like that later on. So, I don't know, keep, keep an eye open for it, uh, just in case. But uh, Deaf Crocodiles put out the likes of films like The Son of the Stars, Sampo, and Delta Space Mission. Uh, their Blu-ray re- releases look awesome, and um, this one in particular has a number of cool extras on it, which we'll get into. Any Atlanta locals out there, uh, you should be advised that Videodrome does have a copy. I checked with them, so they do have a copy of this movie for rent. But the first one to get there gets it. That's right, and then you got to wait till them. You know how it works. You know how video rental works. If you don't, uh, just ask them. Go in and ask them. How does this
2: work? They'll tell you. Two film geeks enter. One film geek leaves.
3: Yes. All right. Let's get into the people behind this film. Let's start right at the top with the uh, director and one of two writers on this, uh, Dušan Vukotic, uh, born 1927, died 1998. Born in what is now Bosnia and Herzegovina. According to Jennifer Lind Barker in the um, excellent booklet that came with the Deaf Crocodile release, uh, he started off as a political and satirical cartoonist in the 1940s, but then became involved in film during the 50s, right as animation was beginning to thrive in Croatia for the first time. So he was one of the early innovators there. Uh, In addition to animated shorts, he also did advertisements for Jardin Film before founding Zagreb Film Studio. His animation work continued through the 1960s, and I have to stress, too, this disc is also awesome, uh, the Deaf Crocodile release, in that it has uh, a number of his animated shorts included in excellent um, uh, quality, and these were really fun to check out as well to see, like, well, what was his animated work like before he turned to um, live action?
2: I would say this is a live action film where the Set pieces and costumes and, uh, and makeup effects and all that are very reminiscent of animation somehow. There, there are mm-hmm. not really animated elements. I mean, I guess there's sort of like some laser effects on the screen, but there's not any straight animation. It's all, uh, it's all live to film, but it does kind of look like a cartoon similar to—I'm trying to think of another movie we've done that was like this. Return to Oz kind of has this quality
3: yeah, the, this this kind of sense that even though it is live action, there is a basic uh, animation absurdity to things, uh, and I, I feel like you also see you see this this uh, element in other uh, filmmakers as well. Like Tim Burton, I think is an example of this. Like yeah. Tim, many of Tim Burton's live action films, they still have that kind of animated cartoon energy in them.
2: But but it's also just uh, there are certain visual qualities that seem similar to animation to me, like uh, a lot of bold lines and mm-hmm. uh, costume designs that just feel drawn as opposed to put together out of cloth, you know?
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, he started doing live action stuff, I believe, in the 1980s and like through the 1980s, did a mix of animation and live action. Uh, he was also a professor and a film theorist. According to Barker, he also co-founded the second oldest animation film festival in the world, currently known as uh, Anamia Fest Zagreb. Uh, his uh, his animation style on its own uh, in these shorts that are included on this disc are yeah, wonderful. They're absurd. They're full of abstract shapes and possessed of a perky energy, uh, but also like a genuine comedy. Like, you know, like these are not like crazy experimental Uh, Film Board of Canada sort of fair where it's uh, not to say that, you know, that all Film Board of Canada animation shorts are the same, but, you know, it's not it's not like super serious stuff. It's about obviously about making people laugh. And I feel like you see this uh, this kind of energy reflected in some of the retro animation projects uh, you've seen in in recent decades, such as uh, 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 the Pixar short Day and Night from 2010. Uh, the videos from the Fallout games. Also, the uh, MCU Loki series has a, a little video about the Time Variance Authority. That uh, I mean, I have no idea if they were inspired by Vukotic, but I feel like I feel like there's a lot of comparisons to be made here between the two works.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Barker also describes his animation style as being bouncy, uh, and yeah, uh, and the the yeah the the, the animation is certainly bouncy. But he was a big success with these. The 1961 short uh, Surrogate won the Academy Award for Short Subjects, cartoons, the following year in 1962. This is one about a guy who goes to the beach. He's kind of like, I guess, if you were a real person, he would be kind of like a rotund fella. Mm -hmm. But everything's made out of abstract shapes. So he's kind of a triangle. Mm -hmm. And he gets there to the beach and he starts blowing up things. Like he blows up a float, but then he's blowing up things like a table and food and then he (laughs) blows up um, uh, a a female uh, to hang out with him and the first one he doesn't like so he deflates her and then he blows up another one but then it it just escalates from there and just gets ridiculous
2: okay is she also a triangle she's
3: very yeah they're all everybody's very geometric okay Uh, this one is available you can find it on on like youtube if you search for surrogate s-u-r-o-g-a-t you'll find the short it's it's pretty fun So Barker points out that uh, Vukotic and his colleagues were initially influenced by Western animation, like Looney Tunes, uh, she mentions this uh, specifically, uh, but they were also influenced by Czech animation, and they steadily developed their own styles. And then as far as this film goes, uh, Barker cites several key influences. So first of all, international sci-fi and horror films of the 60s and 70s, which I I think we we see that here, Uh, like I think she mentions Children of the Damned. Mm. Um, is having an influence. Can't help but compare it to other sort of uh, practical effects monsters of the 1980s, like The Thing. Um, But also he was influenced by 1960s camp, by Czech new wave absurdity, by magical realism. And then also just in sort of the visual texture of the film, especially there's this sense of like the banal everyday world versus the colorful explosive world of fantasy. Uh, it 's pointed out that you know, we see robert he 's almost always wearing like really drab tones mm-hmm. um, every most of the settings have kind of a a drab not not i wouldn 't say cheerless but a very lived in kind of feel like mm-hmm. like it 's comfortable, but it is every day, whereas his the world of his imagination is like glowing lights and uh, strange textures and so forth.
2: Yes, a theme, obviously, that that he wanted to hit over and over in this movie is just the fantastical versus the mundane, Uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes literally, like the fantastic fighting the mundane.
3: Yes. Now, the other writer on the piece is Milos uh, Makorek, who lived 1926 through 2002, a Czech writer who wrote, I believe, mostly children's books, but also screenplays, comics, and so forth. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, getting into the cast, uh,
3: playing Robert, uh, we have Zarko uh, Potosznik, who lived 1946 through 2021, Uh, As always, my apologies if I I screw up any of these names here, but he was a Croatian actor of stage, screen and TV. He has a small part in the 1976 movie The Rat Savior, (laughs) credited as participant in the rat party. This is a movie (laughs) that you and I have been interested in for a while, but if, if memory serves, it's hard to find right now.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen it, but it's on the list due to its premise, which has something to do with the man uh, discovering, I think, he can communicate with like a, a culture of sentient rats. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so um, uh, the actor here, I think this, I think this is his most well-known film, um, both internationally and um, uh, in uh, like Croatian cinema and so forth. But uh, I have to say, he's very enjoyable. Is uh, this kind of bumbling, head in the clouds, would-be sci-fi writer? With this amazing supernatural gift, uh, it's quite a fun and funny performance. But you also you
2: also feel for him, you know, like you you can't help but uh, but sympathize with this character. I have no idea why I think this. Uh, truly, I don't know what what was bringing this to mind, but I kept seeing him in scenes in the movie as a uh, lost extra member of the crew of the Nostromo from Alien. He just looked like a hapless uh, mechanic who would be working alongside, you know, Harry Dean Stanton in, in Alien and, like, wander off and get cocooned. Uh, and I don't know why it brought him— maybe it's like his clothes kind of seemed sort of like a sci-fi jumpsuit from from the Nostromo. I really don't know what it was, but that just kept coming to mind.
3: He's very mild-mannered, and there's a sense that he's— he's just doing his job. He's doing the bare minimum. He would rather not be here. He's not going to put a lot of effort into things that have to do with this world because there is another world inside his head. And that's where most of his focus is.
2: Yeah, I, I do think there's an interesting tension in his performance, which is the fact that the whole movie is about his creativity. Like, he, the whole premise is that he is willing troublesome circumstances into reality with his imagination, and yet he seems almost completely hapless. You know, he has mm-hmm. e- extremely little uh, will or volition. Yeah. yeah, over things in this world or the imagined world, as we'll see. yeah.
3: Now, Robert has a girlfriend, uh, and this is Bibi, played by Lucy Zolova, born 1952, a Czech-born actress whose credits include 1975's Darling, Are We a Good Match, <laughs> and How to Drown Mr. Mr. Mrasek, the Lawyer. Uh, these are not films I'm familiar with, I don't, I, I, but, uh, but she's very good in this. I think it's a solid performance as his loving but almost done with it girlfriend.
2: Yes, she has very little patience for his initial, even for his writing career, uh, when he's just like talking into a tape recorder about his ideas for novels, much less so when aliens start showing up and turning her into a cube. And she's an interesting uh, foil to his, uh, like I was just saying, very... uh, adrift and non-agentic personality. She is very, like, forceful and willful and has a strong personality and is the one who's, like, pushing back against uh, all of this, like, fantastical stuff from the Arcana Galaxy invading their world.
3: hmm So these are, like, our two main human real-world characters. But we also have um, a, a one of Robert's friends who has a,
2: a, a minor but fun role. This is Photo Tony. Photo Tony, yes <laughs> so I think, wait, his name's just Tony, right, but he's a photographer, so his door his apartment yeah. door says photo Tony,
3: yeah, yeah, so my, my wife watched part of the film with me and um and she so got to see she's a photographer, so I was like, you got to come see. This. there's a photographer in this movie, and
2: um, <laughs> oh yeah, what was her rating? <laughs>
3: uh she had some thoughts about it well she was like he's not going to get a good shot uh trying to shoot through a window at night and so forth but but i was like you know i don't think photo tony is necessarily at the top of his game here either (laughs) he's just more ambitious than robert
2: yeah yeah well photo tony seems strange in that uh his ambition seems to be to break through from like tourism photography into journalism is that how you understood it Yes, but he wants to take that shortcut
3: to the top of journalism by getting that one picture that's going to right. change the world, uh, namely
2: right. of aliens visiting the Earth. Exactly, yeah. So I think he, like, hangs out around this, this beach resort taking photos of people for money, but he thinks if he can just snap a picture of an alien, then he'll be the most famous photojournalist in the world. Yes. <laughs> so Photo Tony is played by Lubasha Samardzik
3: who lived 1936 through 2017. Uh, Actually, a pretty famous Serbian actor, uh, I read, uh, also a director and a producer. He was very popular uh, during the 1960s um, uh, in in various films. He was a popular TV actor in the 1980s, and he directed the internationally acclaimed 2000 film Skyhook. Uh, So it's, it's a fun supporting role, but it's definitely one of these cases where you can see how this guy might go on to have a great deal of success. Like if this were a traditional genre film, uh, this would be our hero. Photo Tony would be the one to stand up and save the girl and so
2: forth. Yeah, in the same way that Biba is contrasted to Robert because she has more will and agency. I would say that Photo Tony also has more concrete will and agency than Robert. <laughs> like, he's he's got a goal. Uh, well, You know, actually, though, I guess Robert does have a goal, but it's just not a concrete goal. He just wants to live in his imagination.
3: Yeah. Also worth noting that Lubisha was on a 2019 Serbian stamp. Um, I, uh, I included a, an image of it here for you, Joe. Uh Looks great, great looking stamp. But I would add, wow. just about anything from this movie belongs on a stamp uh, in any country. He looks like Kirk Douglas. Yeah, yeah, he has, yeah. It, it has a. We see him like earlier in life, and then later in life, he does have kind of a, a Kirk Douglas kind of a vibe. All right, this movie notably has a female android in it by the name of Andra. Uh, If you've seen any like covers for this film, any posters or certainly any footage, you've probably seen a glimpse of this, this, this entity. Uh, And this entity is played by the actor uh, Ksenia Prohaska, born 1953, a Croatian-born actress who also pops up in some American films. Uh, She played a mummy. I don't know if it's the mummy, but she played a mummy in the I guess kind of I don't know if it's infamous it's definitely said to be bad, but the nineteen eighty five film transylvania Six five thousand oh. a movie that's mostly known for being a film project funded by Dow Chemical because Dow Chemical had money in Yugoslavia that they could not get out, and so they instead said, well let's make a movie then let's funnel those those funds into a film project and transylvania Six Five thousand was that film project that has a pretty good cast but uh, nothing I've never heard anything nice said about it
2: have you Have you seen it I have not seen it have you I, I tried to watch it one time <laughs> and did not get to the end it uh, it has a very uh, uh, low energy improvised sketch comedy feel oh yeah it
3: which is a shame because again fun cast it's got um. Uh, let's see who's in it Ed Begley Jr. Uh, is in Jeff it Jeff
2: Goldblum I think Jeff Goldblum Gina Davis yeah yeah I well, so I don't know. Maybe it gets really good in the second half. I remember, <laughs> I remember something about the first few minutes kind of drew me in. I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, sure," uh, but then it just it got incredibly tedious. Reviews I, I was looking
3: at seem to indicate it does not get good. <laughs> but if <laughs> if listeners have differing thoughts, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Prohaska also plays Marlene Dietrich in Barry Levinson's Bugsy in 1991. I have not seen mm. Bugsy, but I assume this is like maybe a small background kind of a role.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So, anyway, hard to comment too much on her acting ability, but this, because this performance is again an android, a female android, but it is a memorable presence. So, yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and say she's great in it.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, well, she doesn't have to do much acting. She just like says a few lines in a robot voice. The costume and the makeup do do more of the work. Um, thinking about this this character design, I was wondering: is the Borg Queen based on uh, based on this character here? I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. You look at this
3: this character, and yeah, it makes you think of like the Borg Queen. I thought of Cenobites a bit as well because yeah. there is this mixture of sexuality and. And like dominant female power, but on the other hand, like clearly an uncanny, inhuman quality to the being as well.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a cool character design, and I, I think she looks great. She looks creepy, which is funny because a lot of the characters are like commenting on how beautiful she is. Yes, and of Not course, sure she what is, to make of that?
3: <laughs> she is frequently accompanied by two space children, who also have like gold space jumpsuits on. Uh, bright blonde hair that is cut in kind of like a medieval <laughs> night haircut. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, kind of a medieval bowl cut going on there. Yeah, it's kind of gray Nigel Tufnell hair. Yeah. These children, one of them is played by a child actor by the name of Jasminka Alec. Uh, but this is one of those cases where this is her only credit. So uh, presumably she was in nothing else. But the other one, uh, Targo, I'll <laughs> well mention was played by uh, Rene uh, Bitorajak, born 1972, a uh, Croatian actor of note seen here in his very first role. So um, he's worked rather extensively in Croatian and Bosnian projects, I believe. Uh, he was one of the stars of 2001's No Man's Land, a film about the Bosnian War that won an Oscar for best foreign language film in 2002.
2: Mm. I, I would say also about the uh, kids, it's hard to comment much on their performance because th- they're not doing a lot of uh, human style acting. They're just like standing there and saying weird lines. Yeah. And and like you say, the,
3: with, with the android, the makeup is key. And I did note that uh, the makeup artist on this or one of the two makeup artists is Yuri Hurek. Born 1932, a Czech makeup artist who also worked on 1978's Beauty and the Beast, which we previously discussed on Aha. Weird House. Yeah. That one had some great avian beast makeup. Yes, totally. So I'm, I'm assuming he had a hand in the android effects here. Uh, but there's also someone else, Evo uh, Strangmuller. 1954 is also credited on makeup and he worked on some big productions later on as well including the 2000 dune miniseries alien versus predator in 2004 and the chronicles of narnia prince caspian in 2008 as a prosthetic makeup artist
2: mm. oh wait but you didn't mention fair out vampire did you? Or did you oh
3: no i didn't f- mention fair out vampire that's another one that he worked on <laughs> a film that we haven't seen, but we've mentioned before because it's coming come up in connections on particularly Czech films. This is like the vampire car movie, right?
2: Yeah, I don't know if there's a good way to watch this one. Last time I checked, I didn't find one. but uh, it And it may not be good at all. Some of the reviews are pretty middling, but uh, the premise is it's a vampire car, so I kind of have to see it even if it's bad.
3: Now, we've mentioned that this movie has a monster in it. The monster's name is Moo and we'll spend a fair amount of time discussing him. <laughs> but uh, the the really fun thing here is that m- the monster designer here, the person who created Moo Moo and, and helped bring him to life, is none other than Jan Svankmajer, uh, born 1934. So this is the Czech stop-motion animation master himself.
2: I think while I was... Uh... Out on parental leave last year, you and Seth covered a Jan Svankmeyer film, didn't you?
3: We did. We talked about 1988's Alice. So if you want to hear more about Svankmeyer, go back and listen to that episode, because uh, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the man and his work and how influential uh, he, he was and still is uh, in the world of stop-motion animation. Um, but I'll sum it all up by stressing that he's just a master of the medium, and if he has anything to do with the look of a film— you're probably in good hands. And indeed, Moo Moo is just insane. <laughs> it's, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, it is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen on film.
3: Yeah, uh, I should stress, like Svankmeyer is, is, is part of, huge part of that world of like strange stop motion animation, perhaps creepy stop motion animation that some of you might not be that familiar with, but, uh, but it's out there. Uh, it's waiting for you. And then finally, the music uh, for this film uh, is really good, too. I really enjoyed it. It is a score by a a Croatian-born composer by the name of Tomislav Simovic, who lived 1931 through 2014. Uh, He worked on on multiple films and shorts for Vukotic, including uh, 61's The Substitute, 73's Man, The Polluter, and 77's Operation Stadium. Other films of note include uh, 67's The Fourth Companion, and 68's so I Have Two Mothers and Two Fathers.
2: I agree with your assessment. Really good music in this one.
3: Yeah, it's full of like cascading synth and all the sort of sci-fi motifs you'd expect from a movie like this. And uh, I'm happy to say that it is available. You can, it's, uh, it was put out by the Croatian label Fox and His Friends. Uh, and it's actually available to stream in all the usual places. Just look up Visitors from the Arcana Galaxy.
2: I don't know if this makes any sense, but uh, the music that plays over the opening credits, I was listening with headphones while I watched the movie, Mm -hmm. and the music created a sensation like a kind of bubble of heat expanding through the inside of my cranium, just soft, strange, enveloping sonic texture, a very strong mood, really, really good.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this kind of, I mean, today we would think of it as this kind of like retro electronic sound. Uh, And I guess at the time it was maybe slightly retro, but also sounded like the future. And it still sounds like the future as far as I'm concerned.
2: Also, I love the visuals that went with it in the opening credits. There's this nice mix of concrete and abstract imagery. Uh, So like while that music is playing, Uh, You see something abstract that looks like these blooming flowers of blue paint, but represented Mm -hmm. on what looks like an ultrasound display. Uh, And then there are also these slow pans over physical objects. One thing looks like the bolts around uh, the glass faceplate of an EVA helmet. And then you just see, you know, space imagery, like these blue rivers flowing through space into a green sun and droplets that look like the, uh, you know, the the bits of splatter flying out of a lava lake, but that's like going just passing between the stars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a film that portrays space
3: as being a place of color and, and wonder and mystery. It's not a dark void of death and, uh, and emptiness.
2: And maybe uh, so maybe we should get right into the plot then.
3: Yeah, 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 we're already here. Let's keep going.
2: Okay, so we begin with some narration after we see, you know, space and the credits. So the narrator says, "One of the rare populated planets in the cold, uninviting universe is the small planet Tugador." <laughs> Not the most elegant-sounding planet name I've ever heard, but Tugador. <laughs> Located in the depths of the Arcana Galaxy. Its inhabitants look a lot like humans, but their abilities are almost godlike. Their spaceships move at such speed that they can travel and explore even the most remote galaxies. It was one of those journeys that Targo and Ulu embarked on, followed by Andra. And the whole time... This narration is going on, we're watching stars flashing in space, and then we cut to a totally different scene, a voice memo recorder with like a a cassette tape in it, held in a man's hand. He's talking into the microphone, and the narration continues. The inhabitants of Tugador had perfect maps of of space. They knew all of the other inhabited planets— And now uh, we see on the screen that the man speaking, Robert, is wearing what appears to be a space helmet. And he goes on talking, he says, And Earth, a planet revolving around a great shining star, has piqued their interest since the dawn of time. Andra, the She-Robot, Targo, and Ulu are now approaching the surface of this unknown and mysterious planet. And then suddenly, this is interrupted when a, a woman's hand just, like, wraps on the faceplate of the space helmet. And, and a woman's voice says, Robert, your coffee is ready. <laughs> and so we're not in space at all. Robert is just a regular guy in his apartment. He is sitting at his desk, narrating his own science fiction story into a voice recorder. And his office in his office, we see all these, like, books on shelves, presumably a lot of science fiction books, uh, kind of uh, gadgets and and sci-fi toys and gizmos, posters scattered all around of NASA and uh, you know the moon landings and things like that. And the woman who is rapping on his faceplate is his girlfriend Biba, who clearly has very little patience for his writing or his astronomical obsessions.
3: <laughs> it's a great scene because yeah, the the whole uh, uh, like writing environment is very convincing and cozy, and and there's nothing. You know, there's nothing too weird about it, uh, but, yeah, his insistence on sitting there, dictating his notes while wearing the space helmet really uh, tri- drives home this this comic understanding that, yeah, he's maybe not getting that much done, and it's more about shutting himself off from the rest of the world and living in fantasy.
2: Yeah, yeah, she says, clearly annoyed, she says, are you going to sit around all day with this bucket on your head? <laughs> And uh, then the narrator, the narration goes on. Robert says, time didn't matter for the three space visitors. They manage their time like we handle water faucets. And then uh, Biba is like, we don't handle water faucets. We turn them. (laughs) She's like, Robert, that's not even good writing. But like I was saying earlier, the writing as as writing does not seem to be the point. Robert is not in love with language he he is not a wordsmith he is an ideas guy absolutely it's
3: it's more like if, if he could write, then it would balance things out but it's all it's all
2: like trapped in there, right yeah, but we see Robert Robert. It has a very frustrated life because he wants to be just spending his days wrapped up in, in I guess, talking this story into his tape recorder. But uh, but Biba does not like him spending his time that way. She gets annoyed with him. Also, his neighbors bother him like his neighbors come over and start having conflict. So his neighbor is Photo Tony, and Photo Tony's mother's dog, Vicky, keeps causing problems, and they're trying to get Robert to sort this out for some reason. Uh, It is a cute dog, by the way, but they bring the dog over, and they put it on Robert's desk, and it pees on his manuscript.
3: At first, I thought Robert was maybe like the super or something, but I I think it's just like supposed to give us an idea of the close-knit community of this uh, particular apartment building.
2: Yeah, yeah. For some reason, they want Robert to solve their problems. (laughs) But I don't know why they'd be going to Robert. Robert displays throughout the film no ability whatsoever to mediate or solve other people's problems. Uh, that, not that I can remember.
3: He's just so checked out, he seems neutral.
2: Like, Yeah, I guess
3: so, yeah. <laughs> like, Robert doesn't have a bone to pick. Let him solve this problem.
2: That's a good point, yes. It's like he's a disinterested party, yeah. <laughs> So he just wants time to write, but he can never have a moment's peace. No one respects his ambitions. Uh, And also this was really funny. He just keeps trying to put the space helmet back on (laughs) while everybody's bothering him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so we see that Biba is actually jealous of Robert's characters. She, she's literally like, if you care uh, about this, she robot Andra so much, why don't you marry her instead of me? Mm, And we'll come back to that theme. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so they go to visit uh Biba's family. I think it did you understand it the same way that Biba's sister is getting married, and so her whole family is there in the house trying to get ready for the wedding?
3: Yeah, yeah, there's a big wedding coming up, and uh, I believe the the individual that Robert ends up talking to next is the um the fiance,
2: the groom, yes, yeah, mm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Robert goes along with Biba to the house. She's meeting with her family. Her family uh, seems to look down on Robert. They're like, "Eh, I don't know what you're doing with this guy. And Robert, he's just there to... He Obviously, he wants to talk to the fiancé of the sister about science fiction novels. They're like, oh, boy, Uh, you know, did you read this one? It's about a monster from space. And so this other guy is like, look... You can't call it Visitors from the Arcana Galaxy. That's what Robert wants to call his novel. He says, you've got to call it the Monster from Arcana Galaxy. <laughs> and Robert says, there's no monster in the story. But the other guy's like, look, you're not writing Hansel and Gretel here. <laughs> he explains that you've got to have a monster. And he talks about another sci-fi novel that has a monster that bites off people's heads. Hey, yeah, sounds good. Uh, so the quote is, he says, you've got to, uh, quote, you have to scare people. That's the secret to success.
3: I love how he brings up Hansel and Gretel, as if Hansel and Gretel does not have horrifying elements to it um, in its purest telling.
2: I think it's interesting that he's giving Robert these very uh, mercenary kind of pieces of advice about what the reading public wants, about like what makes a book marketable. But Robert doesn't seem to have written anything yet. It's not like he has a manuscript that's been rejected by a bunch of publishers. It's like he's he's like, I'm going to write a novel.
3: Right. In fact, it's so unformed that he basically is like, oh, yeah, okay, I can add a monster. (laughs) (laughs) It really doesn't wreck anything at all because nothing has been written yet, apparently.
2: That's right. So Robert ultimately decides his monster should be a toy belonging to the children in the story. Uh, And he also briefly says, you know what, I'm going to cut out Targo, the boy from space, or else (laughs) that'll just be too many characters. So four characters would be too many. (laughs) If he adds the monster, he's got to get rid of Targo. So he goes back home, gets back to writing, and now the tone of the story is a little bit different. He talks into his tape recorder and he says, Andra and Ulu, visitors with power from the Arcana Galaxy, are a menace to human life and they are approaching the Earth. And they're not alone. The monster of the Arcana Galaxy is with them. Are we ready for that encounter? But while he's talking, we see out the window behind Robert, and he lives in an apartment building that's, like, right on the water. It's on the coast Mm -hmm. looking out over, I guess, the Adriatic. We see a bright object fall from the sky and land on an island across the water. Uh, Oh, and by the way, yes, he is wearing his space helmet in this scene. But he goes to the kitchen to get a glass of milk when suddenly his voice memo recorder starts talking back to him. It's a woman's voice, very tinny and robotic, saying, Robert, we have arrived. This is Andra. Come find us on the island. And he gets very, very freaked out. He he checks the tape to see if their voices were recorded. But there's only the hiss of static. The tape is blank after he stopped talking into it. Uh, So he doesn't know what to think. But Robert borrows a boat from Photo Tony. Photo Tony's got a boat. Photo Tony's doing okay. (laughs) Uh, and he he motors out to the island in photo tony 's boat he docks, climbs ashore, and he goes wandering through the forest. And then whoa, suddenly they are here. So he like follows a flashing blue light through the courtyard of this building. I think the building is part of a like a tourist resort area on the island. Mm-hmm. And then he goes through the trees and then over this rocky landscape and down a ravine until he meets the three alien beings. And when he he meets them one of the two children starts trying to zap him with eye lasers. <laughs>
3: I love the eye lasers. They're, yeah. the,
2: they're they're quite destructive, as we'll see later on. That's Targo who tries to to eye laser him, but Andra stops him. So again, they introduce themselves. They are Andra Ulu and Targo. And uh, Rob, how would you describe exactly what you what they look like? They're wearing like gold suits. And I guess you already mentioned they're like uh, the the children having the long white uh, hair metal band hair uh, that Andra kind of has these gold ridges along her, her large pale head. Um, I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, they, they look strange.
3: Yeah, their gold spacesuits could also be robot bodies, especially in the case of Andra. Yeah. And, yeah, she has this this big head, like a uh, like a like a heightened forehead situation going on, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, used a lot of times, especially with, um, you know, aliens of of like 50s and 60s science fiction. But here it is it's done so well, uh, like it doesn't it doesn't look fake. It It's
2: just it it it, it just looks I- exceptional. I, I loved it. Yeah. Is there a Mrs. Exeter? Uh, maybe. Maybe we're seeing her right here. <laughs> And they must have I mean, this
3: makeup job must have been really taxed the uh, the artist behind it because she like has these tubes as well that come out of the side of her head yeah. and go into her jawline.
2: Yeah.
3: And granted, she's not doing a lot of like emoting with her face, uh, but she is speaking lines. And like I never you never see a shot where it looks like anything's cracking or coming apart. Uh, it looks great every, every time it's on the screen.
2: When we first meet the kids, Targo says to Robert, you wanted to remove me from the story, but you were unsuccessful. (laughs) There's something so threatening about that.
3: Yeah, already we see that he doesn't have control over what he's creating. He doesn't have control over his imagination. He tried to prune it a little bit, and his imagined world rejected the change.
2: That's right. And Targo, seemingly upset by this, uh, he throws out his toy, a little toy he has with him, which grows to a giant size. And this is Moo Moo the monster. But at this moment, we only get a glimpse. So maybe we won't fully describe it yet.
3: Yeah. At this point, we can just tell that it's roughly bipedal, has kind of a snout or a trunk going on.
2: But you don't really get much more than that. Right. So Robert is... uh, chased by the monster he runs away then he is chased by what looks like a glowing blue Christmas ornament that floats in the air it's like a a sky blue ball with these greebles on it he gets in the boat he tries to drive away he wields I think a beer bottle in self defense against the thing Mm -hmm. and uh, the the, the ship just keeps chasing him he jumps out of the boat somehow I don't know somehow he ends up back uh, back home yeah, yeah. Rather freaked out by the whole encounter. Right. So he the next day, Robert goes to speak to a professor. This is just a character just called The Professor about whether he is having a psychotic episode. He's like, yeah, here's what I saw, Doc. And the doctor is like, do you use drugs? And he says no. And he's like, oh, well, it seems all right then. Um, but he explains a bit about his personal history. Robert says that uh, sadly his mother died when he was born But when he was a baby, he wanted milk, and he psychically made his father grow breasts so that his dad could breastfeed him. That's the story.
3: You you might ask, well, how would he remember that? Uh, Well, he he, probably—he would not remember that, Uh, I think, if you go back to some of our Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes on this. But luckily, the movie depicts this entire scene. We see his father grow breasts and then breastfeed the young baby Robert. And already, you you know, there's been plenty of weird stuff already in the film, but this was a scene that really let you know, like, okay, this movie is going to continue to take some sharp turns that you were not anticipating.
2: Yes. Psychic powers making, Yeah, yeah. So the professor listens to the story, kind of nods. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's called tellergy. Uh, He says the professor says this concept is not yet proven but it's under intense study in parapsychology. And it's a condition where uh, a person of intense willpower can make their desires manifest as physical reality. And Robert's like, oh, cool. (laughs) And the professor's like, do you have a problem or an obsession that is bothering you? And of course Robert does. It's the book he wants to write, but, you know, he's like, it's always on his mind, but he's being bothered all the time. He's not really able to write it. And while they're sitting there, Robert psychically manifests a book on the professor's desk it just like appears out of out of thin air and the professor is like oh that's interesting you just made a book appear Uh, so he's like okay I'm gonna write you a prescription for chilling out you need to (laughs) relax and Robert says okay (laughs) this is a good scene it is Uh, and then after this Robert he picks up the book that he psychically manifested on the desk and he takes it to his sci-fi buddy from earlier who Mm -hmm. I think is working at a bookstore And when going into the store, the the guy is talking to another customer and he's like, ah, yes, uh, it's an alien beast from another galaxy. It, uh, you know, it eats everyone. And Robert interrupts him to be like, hey, I just made this book appear. Uh, Do you have another copy of it? I think is what he asks. And the guy's like, no, this book says it's by you. And Robert says, that's right. And then the owner of the shop, I think, comes in and looks at the book and says, all the pages are blank. This isn't a book. You know, come back when when it's got words
1: or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to
2: you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love... So we get some a uh, little more uh, seeing into Robert's uh, mundane day-to-day life. He's doing a pretty crummy job at work. His day job is he's a desk clerk at like a hotel or resort on the coast here. Mm-hmm. And he gets in trouble with his boss for having a beard. His boss is like, shave that thing off.
3: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look like a great uh, work environment. His boss does seem like a bit of a meanie. But Robert's clearly not putting a lot of effort into the whole endeavor.
2: Yeah, it is bad on every end. I think his boss would be mean even if he was a good employee, but I, he's mm-hmm. not he's not really trying. No. But later that night, the voice contacts Robert again through the recorder, and Andra is there. She she tells him that uh that she and the space aliens, uh, all three of them, belong to him because he created them and he's gotta come back to the island. Oh, but before he goes back to the island, it shows more relationship problems between Robert and Biba. Her family is mad at him for acting strangely and being a bad boyfriend, but Robert knows how to fix it. He's going to take Biba out to the island and show her that his alien robot characters have physically manifested and come to life, which is the perfect way to save any relationship that's on the rocks. That's right. Totally the right move. (laughs) So they go out, they explore the island, they see the giant glowing blue Christmas ornament going inside a cave. And you know what? I was surprised here because what I expected to happen would be that he could see them and she couldn't. You know, Mm -hmm. that seems like what would happen in another movie. But no, she immediately sees it, too. And so it's like totally physically externally real for her as well. And she sees Andra and Targo and Ulu and they are having, quote, an anatomy class where they have captured a guard from the resort on the island and they are dissecting him and removing his heart. Yes, which then this scene,
3: I have to stress, it is not anywhere near as graphic as that may sound, yeah. but it is like 100 percent weirder than we made it sound too, because yes. he's like floating and they've like bloodlessly removed his heart and he's. Uh, and, and also the the guard is seemingly like awake during the whole process. He's just kind of like, <laughs> and it's
2: wonderful. So Robert then uh, sees the blue sphere floating around and he's like, I'm going to touch it. I want to touch the blue sphere. So he reaches out, he touches it, and this destroys it. It like explodes and disappears. And then Andra is furious with him. She says, uh, you know, this is our ship. Uh, How are we going to get home now? But she has a solution. She says in situations like this, the only thing to do is to go back in time. So Andra opens up her torso and shows us her mechanical guts and then winds back the clock to the time before Robert touched the ship. And this time she interrupts him before he does it. This
3: insight into the inner workings of the android are, are, are very well done as well. Uh, it's, yeah. very, it's glowing and uh, mechanical. And in a later scene, we see, I believe, Robert like look through from the other side, which reminded me specifically of a scene in Tobor the Great. <gasps> yes! Uh, yeah, so I wonder if that was inspiration, or if this was like maybe a common trope of sort of old robot movies that inspired it.
2: Wow, if this movie was inspired by Tobor, that, that would be something why not (laughs) that would mean two degrees of separation from the christmas carol sponsored by the magnavox corporation to visitors from the arcana galaxy
3: (laughs) now this is a lot for beba to take in here Uh, and i think we, we we should not be shocked to see that she freaks out a little bit
2: that's right she gets scared and tries to run away Andra says she cannot escape and then zaps her with some kind of energy beam, which transforms Biba into a cube. It like shrinks her into a metallic cube. First, a larger, I don't know, like maybe foot cube, metallic cube with a hand sticking out of it. And then they shrink her into an even smaller cube that can like fit into the palm of Robert's hand.
3: Yes, I think one of the children initially zaps her. And then Andra has yes. to finish it. And she says, so you can't do that yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, have, you haven't worked out the art.
2: Your Your skill at shrinking people into metallic cubes is not yet perfected.
3: <laughs>
2: this is another classic way to heal a struggling relationship. One of you, at least, has to temporarily transform into a cube. That's right. Uh, and the aliens start talking to Robert. They're like, are you a mammal? And he says, yeah. And they're like, Ugh, gross. <laughs> and the children marvel at the fact of, of of how primitive and undeveloped Robert is and the paradox that he created them. They are the much more advanced beings with all this technology and intelligence and, and every, everything. And they were created by this being that is far less complex than they are, which is kind of an interesting theme. Like mm-hmm. uh, Targo as this, character from a sci-fi planet knows about ways that he could have been imagined that robert doesn't know about so targo is like if our creator had been more advanced we could have had paralasers in our eyes they don't specify how paralasers are better or more advanced than the regular eye lasers targo already has but it that's to be understood and uh and so the kids are kind of like they're kind of bummed out they're like if only robert had been from a more advanced planet then we could have been imagined with more advanced capabilities of our own
3: yeah <laughs> and targo i think still has a grudge about the whole uh attempted pruning from the uh, fantastic narrative
2: that's right targo never really gets over it he's he's got mm-hmm. a chip on his shoulder the whole time yeah you tried to cut me from the story uh I'm, and i refuse to go Uh, But Andra is more interested in what Robert has imagined for their future. She's like, what's in the next chapter of the story? And Robert doesn't really have an answer for that because, you know, he's not very, he's not really into the details, the plot mechanics. He's a big ideas guy. Yeah. Oh, but then in one of the the funniest scenes in the movie, even though it does involve corporal punishment of children, not usually funny, but funny in this case, Andra disciplines the children after they eye laser her fingers off. So I think Targo shoots her fingers off with beams of light from his eyes, and then she whips the children with a lightsaber. Yeah, she
3: grows the missing finger back, and then, yeah, one of her fingers extends into a lightsaber, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen next? Just she starts spanking the knuckles, lashing the knuckles of the children, and they're like, ow, ow, ow. Which again, normally maybe wouldn't be funny, but in this scene is is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Great.
2: Uh so back on land, Robert has to explain to Biba's sister that she's been <laughs> transformed into a cube. And Beba's sister, oh, she doesn't like she gets mad, she knocks the cube into the water, and then he's like, Oh no, she's down in the water. So they have to get a diver to find the cube. And take- I, it's
3: great because Biba's sister, too, is like she doesn't outright say, I think you killed my sister, right. but it's, it's heavily implied like what on earth has happened here. Um, but then he keeps going on about this cube and she's like, OK, I guess I'll listen to him.
2: Yes, and then, but, well, actually, biba has got multiple sisters, so Beba's, uh, I think her older sister is the one who's skeptical. Beba's little sister seems to believe it, but she's like, okay, we got to cut the cube open to get her out. But Robert has to explain, no, 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 she's not in the cube, she is the cube, so you can't cut it. <laughs> uh, eventually, the cube spontaneously transforms back into Biba, proving him right.
3: Yeah, I th- and I think the... um uh, the children or Andra
2: had said that it was only temporary. So it's well-timed
3: yeah. before anyone could freak out any longer or anyone could be charged with murder.
2: Now, if you thought things were weird so far, it is going to get so much stranger. On the <laughs> island, there's a sequence of events where, like, a tourist child—or no, no, no. The child of the cook in the mm-hmm. resort uh there finds— the severed Andra finger. So like the severed alien robot finger and takes it into the restaurant kitchen at the resort and is like dad look a finger and he's holding (laughs) it right there next to a meat grinder and all these tourists come into the kitchen including photo tony who's standing there with his camera and they're all watching as they're holding this finger over the meat grinder the finger falls in it gets ground up with the other meat which they do they do explain what the meat's going to be used for it's going to be to make stuffed peppers uh and then the finger gets ground into a metallic powder, and there is a large man with a red beard who just keeps appearing and sort of oh, like yes. issuing authoritative statements. I don't know who this guy is or where he comes from. The, the big guy with the beard, and he just looks at the the, the uh, bowl of ground meat. He says, "That's not a human finger."
3: This guy, I think, must. I think he's the town crackpot. Uh-huh. I think we glimpse him earlier in the sci-fi bookstore. I'm not sure. Oh, and, and I think. The actor who plays him, uh, who uh, I, I looked him up, and he's, he's rather tall. I think he plays Frankenstein <gasps> in the, the Transylvania film we were talking about earlier.
2: Oh, that's funny. Yeah.
3: But it's like, he's the town crackpot, and now it is his time to shine. And I love how people start listening to him.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. When you say he, play, do you, he plays Victor Frankenstein or he plays the creature? Oh, well, you know, I Frankenstein uh, the monster, yes. Oh, okay. I'm not trying to be yeah. pedantic. I just yeah. d- didn't know for sure.
3: Is is Victor Frankenstein in uh, the Ed Begley Jr. Transylvania? I have no idea. I don't okay. remember. There is some sort of Frankenstein's monster in it, and I believe this is the gentleman who also plays it.
2: So everybody on this island now, it's full of tourists. they they all been hanging out at the beach, and I guess they're bored, and they want to see aliens now. They're like, all right, that wasn't a human finger, so there must be aliens on the island. So they start like running all around trying to Mm -hmm. find the aliens. There are dudes in wetsuits with spear guns who say they're going to hunt the aliens, and they go to the cave where— the aliens are hanging out and shoot spear guns at them and there's like a laser battle where uh the aliens are shooting uh, you know cyclops eye beams at them and ulu zaps one of the spear gun men on the butt with a laser
3: oh this seems great because it's like they're trying to make this aquatic landing it's like the battle of the the, the alien cave and the eye beams are just causing enormous explosions in the water which i guess it's due to like 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 the, the rapid thermal heating of the of the water, uh, though, uh-huh. probably, you know, the effect is explosives in the water. But uh, right. but it's great. It's like, wow, it's like this is this is it's it's
2: like the the, the children are artillery uh, in, a, in a battle. It's wonderful. Yeah. And uh, so this causes tourists from the beach. Now that they know the aliens are in the caves. So like hundreds of tourists flood into the caves to find the aliens and I don't even know where this comes from. A bunch of them start yelling they're like, come out and meet us. And they decide to get naked to prove to the aliens they are harmless. So a bunch of the tourists (laughs) just like take all their clothes off, except they've still got shoes on and they're Mm -hmm. running around in the cave naked, but with shoes. And then the, the big guy with the beard is there and he's like, if you see them, don't make any sudden moves.
3: (laughs) Yes. They didn't say something about just smile, just smile and, and look peaceful or something. Yeah. I love this. Uh, Barker in her uh, notes points out that it's like this inversion of uh, the Frankenstein scenario where the villagers, instead of grabbing pitchforks and going up there and like, let's get him. Though I guess we do see that initially with the the first phase of the assault, but here with the villagers, it's more of like, no, let's just take all our clothes off so they know that we're, we're just soft and harmless yeah. and we don't wish them any harm, though we are still
2: rapidly invading their space. Yeah, maximum disarmament of just getting completely naked. Yeah. Uh, but they go looking around in the caves. They don't find them. It's like, wh- where are they? It turns out the aliens have moved into Robert's apartment. So That's he right. comes. Yeah, Robert comes home and he finds Andra operating her own hand as a magical vacuum cleaner on the floors. And she's like vacuuming. He drops his groceries when he sees her, and uh, her vacuum cleaner sucks up objects as large as an apple and a baguette.
3: Yep, some nice stop-motion work here. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, I love that her arm is extended into a vacuum cleaner. And when she's done with it, like it glows and then shrinks back down to a normal hand again.
2: So he says he's hungry, and she offers to cook for him. She's like, well, you know, what do you want? And he says, you know what? I would like a steak, pommes frites and a salad and so she makes him a steak palm frites, and a salad out of her this like weird magnet in her guts but it's <laughs> tiny it's like a little, little tiny plate it's one bite of each thing it's and like he food says,
3: pills like in uh, yeah.
2: santa versus the martians that's right he, he says that it's the best beef steak he's ever had but uh the portions are kind of small and she's like "No, no, no you don't need any more than this <laughs> Oh, and then it just, Andra starts demanding that Robert touch her. She's like, touch me. And he wants to, but he's very afraid. And then Targo interrupts by, he comes into the room, the kid, and he has his little a monster toy with him, Moo And he like makes it turn into a big monster and sends it after Robert. Uh, and so for a moment it's menacing, but Andra shows him how to defend himself by pressing a button on this little remote control.
3: Now, we only get a really a, a quick look at the full-size Moomoo here, but already we can see that this is an incredible creation. I have to say, Moomoo is unlike anything I've ever seen before in a monster film. The basic concept, I think, does remind me a bit of uh, what we talked about in Terror Vision, which, of course, mm. came later. Yeah. The idea that you wanted to create a practical effects monster that was at once uh, incredibly terrifying if the context was right, but also looked really dumb. So <laughs> Mumu is an absurd monstrosity with, with parts of him seem to be, he seems to be cobbled together from oversized and misplaced bits of human anatomy. Like a lot of him, uh, like he seems to have sort of wing-like uh, appendages or features that, that seem to be big human ears that are part of his body.
2: Yeah, but they're also kind of they're kind of mouse ears at a distance, but they're also a curled up appendage, making it look like a ram's horn.
3: Yeah. Oh, oh, you're talking about on his head. Yeah, he does. Oh, have... I'm
2: sorry. I'm sorry. I, I misheard you then.
3: No. Yeah. Because on his head, he has these things that are like ears or horns, but are also like tentacles. Uh-huh. Uh, but then on his torso, oh.
2: it's like he has giant human ear lobes yes. as part of him. Um, yes, so you're right. It's really weird like the outer fleshy part of a of a human ear on as as wings almost.
3: Yeah. And yeah, we'll, we'll see a lot, a lot more from Moomoo. Um and there's never any wasted scene with Moomoo. Mumu. is terrific. It's cuz and it's either you're getting like a bumbling rubber monster suit kind of an effect in the in all the best ways. Um, And it's, you know, it certainly allows you to lean into the comedy and the absurdity, but also he's like legitimately terrifying in scenes as well, especially given the context of the film and the sort of thematic ambiguity of the film where, uh, at least for me anyway, watching it as someone who's, you know, not there as part of its original time period and original release audience, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to expect of this movie, and therefore the monster's a little more dangerous because of it.
2: Yeah, you know what I would actually compare it to? Though this design is a hundred times weirder and more interesting and better. But it has a similar uh, dual nature and appearance to Trumpy from Pod People.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar morphology. Um, this is like the the nightmare version, like the extra nightmare version of it. Yeah. And, of course, later on we see stop motion and puppetry effects uh, added uh, into the overall Mumu effect, and
1: it, it just works wonderfully. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is
2: here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love... All right. So after this uh, next thing that happens is Biba comes home to Robert's apartment only to catch Robert caressing Andra, the alien android. And Biba is very angry about this. Robert tries to defend himself by saying, but Biba, every part of her body makes a different beeping noise when you touch it. She is perfection. And Biba is not swayed by this. Like, this doesn't make her less angry.
3: Yeah, uh, this this scene is great because on the one hand, this is very much a trope, you know, the whole yeah. uh, you know one character catches catches the other two in the act, and there's a confrontation. But it, it's all the more ridiculous here. It's not even the first time this has been done with a human and a robot being caught by another human, uh, or the last time. Uh, but it's just it has such absurdity to it, like the whole like like her body makes a different beep, you know, wherever you touch it, and and Beba's like, I bet it does. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah. So Biba g- gets very angry. She directs a lot of her anger at Andra. She calls her an erotic bucket of bolts and mm-hmm. compares her to a laundry machine. Uh, and then at one point, Andra shocks Biba with blue light to like, I don't know, Yeah, I guess in reaction to her touching her. And uh, Biba then begs Robert to send them back to the Arcana Galaxy. She says, make them go away forever. If She's like, if you love me, make them disappear and he tries he you know he cares about Biba so he does want to do that he tries to make them disappear but he is unable to he doesn't know how to get rid of them mentally they're just stuck here now yeah so Biba storms out and somehow uh i think does Targo put the mumu doll in Biba's purse is that what happens yeah he does that mean spirited little scamp he puts that mumu doll right into her purse and so she goes back to her family's house where I think she was coming to get Robert to go to her sister's wedding. So the wedding celebration is going on. Uh, I don't know if it's like a rehearsal dinner the night before or if it's the wedding itself. I don't know. There are a bunch of people at the house gathered for a big meal. She goes back to the house, takes the Moo, Moo doll with her. And unfortunately, it transforms back at her family's house into its full size mode. And just, it just goes wild. It uh, starts attacking people. Somebody cuts off its like weird snout snake tongue thing anteater tongue and mm-hmm. it sprays green blood all over everybody ruins the wedding there is this giant scene that goes on forever of mumu just like attacking the wedding and ruining the feast and like shooting weird tentacles everywhere and, and maybe being defeated like oh dad gets it, like shoots the monster and then it falls down but then it gets back up and And then the professor is there at the wedding for some reason. And he's like, we are witnesses to the first ever visitor from another galaxy. And he goes and tries to touch the thing. No, this he later goes and tries to touch it after he decides instead that it's a collective hallucination and it Mm -hmm. bites his hand off. It twists uh, the grandpa's head off. This other grandpa is playing accordion wedding music the entire time. Uh, It like, Attacks some family member with this puff of green gas, uh, mm-hmm. and then at the end, the monster's elf trunk turns into a flamethrower and is just like torching everything, and uh, it, like spits out a glowing hot fork into a slice of cake, and the cake hisses, which is a nice touch.
3: This is a lot to try and handle. I realize, especially if you haven't um, if you haven't seen the film and you're just hearing all this, because it's like on one hand, like the flamethrower is terrifying. It's yeah. like it's a lot of these fire effects, uh, more day, more more nowadays than ever, I, I'm just like, oh, my God, it's just terrifying. It's real flame. This is not a computer effect. Um, the head ripping off, and I think a leg gets ripped off as well. These are not bloody scenes. It's more of like a surrealistic, yeah. um, like absurd um uh, dismembering uh where he pulls people apart like they're dolls, yeah, uh, like when he pulls the head off and he throws it, it lands in the punch bowl, and then in there in the po- punch bowl, the head is bobbing around <laughs> and still speaking,
2: yeah, it keeps talking yeah and and the 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 effect they did on that is great there's a cartoonishness, a kind of non reality to it. And uh, Robert arrives just in time to save Biba by pressing the button on the remote to make the monster disappear.
3: Oh, wait, before the monster disappears, I also have to mention, this is pure synchronicity, but the monster also manifests a belly, mouth, and nipple eyes.
2: Yes, Did you catch it does. That? Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. Which we just finished talking about on the, our core Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes. But yes, yeah, Svankmeyer didn't hold back. This this monster Mumu is just a buffet of just absurd monstrosity.
2: So Robert goes back and complains to Andra. He's like, This monster from your planet uh, attacked Biba's family's wedding guests. And Andra says, You can't be mad at a toy. She's like, weirdly unsympathetic at first. But then she says, you know what? We can go back in time and fix it. Mm -hmm. So she rewinds the clock on reality, goes back to before Biba walked in on them earlier. And so now Biba comes into the apartment and does not find Robert caressing Andra, but instead she finds the blue ball floating around the apartment, the alien spaceship. And from here, Andra, Targo, Ulu, Mumu, and Robert all fly away together in the spaceship into space to go back to the Arcana galaxy. And then there's an interesting twist in space. Uh, he, he's like sitting there sort of at a desk, just floating in space. It's like their spaceship doesn't have really like a metal interior hull. It's just like they're floating through the stars and uh, he's sitting at his desk and Andra comes up to him and says, your coffee's on the table, which is what Biba said to him at the very beginning of the movie when interrupting his writing and, and not letting him, him concentrate. So it kind of makes you wonder that like, in a way he's like, Oh, have I been freed from all of these distractions now? Can I just like dream and imagine forever because I'm floating off to this other galaxy with, with my alien friends? Maybe not really. Maybe they're just going to keep interrupting him now. <laughs>
3: this is also a callback to when Andra pours him coffee uh, to go with his meal I don't know if we mentioned this or not, but she pours coffee out of her fingertip and then yes. and then uh, pours uh, cream out of the other fingertip. Yes. She's just like a Swiss army knife of uh, of gadgets and features.
2: I wonder what you made of the ending, Rob. Is it is it a more straightforward, sentimental, happy ending where where Robert is uh, finally getting to live the life of the imagination now that the people are back on Earth unharmed? Like, you know, they wound back the clock. So the monster didn't actually hurt anybody. Everybody's OK. Um, and now he just gets to, you know, dream and imagine forever. Or is it a more satirical thing where it's kind of like Robert's problems are not solved?
3: Yeah, I guess it's kind of both, right? Because, yeah, it, I mean, it, it comes back to that that confrontation earlier, like uh, where uh, Biba walks in and there's a, you know, a big argument. And, um, you know, this is like like the, the final straw of your fantasy versus your reality. You have to choose. and. Of course, he's he's not really able to muster enough will to choose, and it leads to this whole uh, catastrophic set of events with Moomoo, the monster, rampaging and uh, killing people. Um, but then they solve it by just turning back the clock and removing that point of of uh, confrontation by yeah. just going ahead and removing any choice from him, and um, and so he just gets whisked away into that world of fantasy. But at the same time, he seems happy. I guess he's happy and. I mean, an argument could be made that everyone off else is better off without him, especially if he's just going to manifest rampaging monsters if left to his own designs.
2: I, want, I don't know if it's consciously getting at this, but I wonder if another thing is, well, these are the creatures that he is imagining. So in some way, he is kind of responsible for what they do. So I wonder if the whole thing of Her now saying, uh, you know, Robert, your coffee is on the table and interrupting him while he's trying to dream on the ship is a way of showing that he's like creating the situations where he is constantly being interrupted to sort of like prevent himself from ever having to follow through on the full creative work. You know, I think we all know creative people or probably in some sense, creative people know a part of yourself that's like this where like you can... Uh, you know, if you fear that you're not going to be able to create the thing you want to create in the way that you want to create it, you might sometimes subconsciously put obstacles in your own path that kind of obviate that that problem, like that prevent you from ever failing on your own terms, honestly.
3: Yeah, I mean, especially if you know, like you have you haven't sort of embraced the reality that that any creative endeavor is going to kind of have those two phases, right? Yeah. Or more, or certainly more than one phase. You're going to have that initial phase of sort of free form creativity, but then you have to make stuff work. Yeah. You have to, you have to to turn it into language. You have to turn it into cinema. You have to break it down into a script, et cetera. And a lot of times you are going to lose stuff and you're going to have to, like the dream is not going to um, come willingly into reality. Uh, you know, coming back to that, the, the the whole idea of reality and fantasy butting heads. Uh, and you know, Robert, I guess, is just fundamentally unable to um, to to deal with this transference. Uh, you know, he's not able to muster the will to control the fantasy or to like control its entry, uh, possible entry into reality in either a fantastic sense or a realistic sense like writing the book.
2: How much of it do you think he ever actually did write? We see some of a manuscript at the beginning, like with the Mm -hmm. dog pees on some pages. At another part, we see him wad up some pages and throw them in the trash. So he's writing something, but I never get the feeling that he's getting very far. I'm assuming
3: he has... A bunch of notes, uh, like sort of d setting notes about characters and factions and planets. Though, again, uh, okay. not more than four <laughs> yes. characters because that's plenty. <laughs> and then he probably has like five to ten pages that he is just constantly rewriting and tinkering with, but never getting much, much further than five or ten pages.
2: Oh, my God. This dude's drawing maps. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. drawing maps.
3: Yeah. Trugador, uh, that's the planet, right? Tr- Trugador Something is fully like mapped. All the continents, uh, everything. All right, should we call it there? Yeah, we should go and call it here. We could keep talking about this movie. Yeah, it's it's a great one. Highly recommend it. Uh, check it out wherever you can get it. Rent it at Videodrome. Buy it from Def Crocodile. Uh, just see it if you can just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you want to see a list of all the movies we've covered on Weird House Cinema, well, you can go to Letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. We are Weird House on there, and we have a list of all the movies we've covered over the years, sometimes a glimpse ahead. Uh, at what's coming up next. I also blog about these films at some Um Don't always put a lot on those blog posts, but on this one I'll make sure to throw in some of those short films and also some of the music so you can check those out as
2: well, As and also some links to where you can obtain the picture. Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com